Hello and welcome to The Wide Debate, where myself and my good colleague Callum um, shamelessly educate ourselves every single week by reading some of the best books in the world and some of the books that we believe have moved the most people. This week, we have a very, very special guest. She's an international best-selling author. Her book is The Freedom Master Plan. Do we have it in the office? We do indeed. I have my copy oh, here. That was a Look how, look how book. bad your copy looks compared to mine, because I bought myself the, the hardback. Yeah. Uh, plus, yeah. I read it on, on Kindle. So, uh, But no, it's, it's a really, really good book. She's a very, very talented entrepreneur. She's a brilliant copywriter. Uh, she's an avid vegan, so if you kill animals for a living, she will fuck you up. And she's great fun. And I am pleased to introduce... Matali Deperkesith. I fucked it up. Yes, you did really well. You just gave up before you finished. Otherwise, <laughs> the ending wasn't so good, but you just gave up on yourself. That's all it was. <laughs> It's like it's like that, that, that kid when he goes in for the first kiss and, and he kind of he's like I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do and it and he kisses you on the cheek like, and walks away. You fucked it up. That was more of a headbutt than a peck on the cheek, though. I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, alrighty, let's. This week, we are going to be going through the Freedom Master Plan by Mitali Depuke Sather. Think about it. Did I? It's getting progressively worse. I'm loving it. <laughs> we spend all day practicing. I still won't get it right. I'm really sorry. It's okay. It's absolutely fine. I think I was about nine years old before I could spell my own surname, so it's fine. <laughs> well, I mind's Martin. <laughs> yeah. exactly. That's a unique problem. Yeah, I hope you could spell that before you were nine years old. No, Michael, yeah. I never knew whether the E and the A came before each other or the A and the E came before each other. And I was like about 11 by the time I, I kind of <laughs> nailed it down that it was Mate. A before the E. <laughs> I, still I still don't know, to be honest. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I've got a degree in writing. I have no idea where the E and the A go. Oh, my God. I was lucky. I was <laughs> lucky. I Michael with the other way around. I don't think that's a, a spelling of Michael. Although now, I mean, I've seen all kinds of spellings of all kinds Who knows? of goals now, doesn't it? So, <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have uh, three first names in, in my name. My name is Callum James Roy, which are all first names. Yeah, and I was so, told when I was young, we should never trust a guy with, you know, two first Yeah, names. I hear that a lot. I know. I've got it's three as well. Outrageous. Mm -hmm. Can't trust I know. I'm, I'm, I'm in a room full of guys who don't have surnames. That's a bit worrying. <laughs> yeah. Stole first names. When I, I go to the doctors, it's just a roulette about what name I get called. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, cool. Um, let's get into it. Let's ask some questions. So we called the why debate. So I thought we'd do some why questions to get started. So you said in, in the book that three is the sexiest word in the English language. I, I love that. thought it was great. Um, and uh, on the front of your book, I thought that freedom jumps out for me. So my first question to you is, why is freedom so important to the concept of the book? Um, well, it's not just the book. It's in a wider sense. If you, if you ask a lot of people what they want, especially if they've, they've got their own brand or their business, they'll say, well, money. And it's like, well, yes, okay. But if you think about it, money in itself, it's not even attractive. You know, I, I don't know about you. We don't really have the most attractive currency. Um, we've now got nicer. We don't have paper notes anymore. We have plastic notes. I suppose they look a little bit shiny and they look a bit nicer. But really, they're not the most attractive things in the world. So it's not money that we want. 
it's what money gets us if you think about it that's we don't want money it's what money will get us and the key thing it doesn't matter who i'm speaking to the key thing that people are looking for is freedom whether it's freedom to hang around the people they want to hang around with as opposed to being told where you need to go and work and who you need to hang out with freedom to go and do what you want to do so when you want to have vacations you can have vacations rather than i've got to work around other people's schedules i mean i can talk a whole hour of different kinds of freedom but what money does for you is give you freedom so that's kind of what i wanted to get because originally the book was going to be called booked i was trying to be clever i was trying to use a pun there and the whole <laughs> idea was you know the whole idea was you know if you write a book as an author then it becomes this automatic lead generation machine. So therefore you'd be booked, as in your, your diary would be booked of awesome high ticket clients, you'd be making a ton of money. And then after consultation with a lot of my audience, they said, no, I kind of don't want to be booked. I don't want to be working 40, 50, 60 hours, even if the clients were amazing and I'm doing what I want to do, I would rather just work 20 hours a week or less, but still make be making a potload of money but then be able to spend the money and do what I want to do. I want to have the freedom and the word freedom kept coming up in different contexts, but it's always like, I want the freedom to spend as much time with my kids. I had one guy tell me, I don't, I don't see my kids go off to bed because I'm still working usually at that point, because a lot of his business, he's based in the UK, but a lot of his clients are in the U S so he works through into the evenings and he never sees his kids go to sleep. His wife does that. And he said, I'd love to have the freedom to be able to just, just read a nice little bedtime story to my two sons and watch them go to sleep. So the term freedom kept coming up again and again. And that's what made me change, ultimately change the name of the book, because I realized people don't want to be booked. They don't actually want to have potloads of money if they're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. They want to have enough money to have freedom in their lives. And that's where it came from. Nice. Yeah, I like it. That's cool. Uh, the uh, yeah, freedom is something we talk about quite a lot on the podcast, don't we, Mike? About like how I think we were mentioning was it last week or the week before there was there was a book and they mentioned like they they'd interviewed people. This is going to get very deep. I apologize. They'd interviewed people that were uh, they were like in the last few years of their life and they the things that they their biggest regrets were like, not spending time with the people working too book. hard. And yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it just really stands out and it, it makes so much sense. And yeah, you're right. And currency is ugly <laughs> other than coin currency. I think coin currency is pretty, pretty like. Yeah, some kinds. I'm not in, really all that bothered about coins of this country that don't really be, they're not really all that pretty. But I've seen in some countries, they seem to have really, like, I love the, the currencies where they have a hole in the middle of the coin. I, I was about hold. to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Not, I'm really attracted to coins with a hole in the middle. I'm not entirely sure why. But I am. Yeah, coins are better than notes, I guess. So it's, it's ironic that the coins don't actually have all that much value either. So it just yeah. goes, you know. But yeah, I mean, even people who say they love money, it's not. They don't, because you, otherwise you just collect money and stick it in a room somewhere and look at it. But that's not what you're doing. You're spending uh, yeah. it. You're investing it. Game. You're doing things with it. So it's what people, it gets. People who love money love the game, don't they? They don't love the money. And the freedom. Yes. I mean, we, we run our offices 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. Monday to Friday. We don't, we don't, we, we, I'm always at home every night for my kids before I drop them at school or I'm there before they go to school when they get home. And he kind of built a business around that kind of for the exact same thing that you, you're saying is 
yeah. what's the point if you're not with the actual people who you give a shit about? Exactly. It's like, you know, you can make a lot of money. What are you going to do with it? At some point you're going to die. So I'm like, what are you going to do with all this money? So it's, it really is all about what it can get you and your version of what freedom looks like. Mm. Yeah. And, and uh, what for you, what was your version of freedom? What kind of things has, uh, have you, what freedom have you bought with, uh, with your um, success? Good question. Well, the first, I mean, it's in stages, um, as it always is. Freedom ends up becoming meaning. It means different things at different points in your life. So in the beginning, it was just, I've got seasonal affective disorder. I'm terrible. Okay. At I'm not going to get out of bed before nine. That did not gel well with any of my bosses. Because <laughs> <laughs> say, wow, I've got seasonal affective disorder, so I'm not going to get out of bed nine. I'm not going to get into work till about 11. And say, mm, no, your hours are between eight and four, so you kind of need to be here by eight. So I was I was ill a lot during um, the winter because obviously I'm getting up. It's affecting my mental health, which then affects my physical health. So I was ill a lot, taking time off, then getting reprimanded for having all this time off. And so it's just this endless cycle. So for the, originally the freedom was get out of this seasonal affective disorder hell. I need something where I can create my own hours. And that way, in the summer, right now, I could be up at four in the morning, which is fine. But then when it, it goes down to winter, I really don't want to get out of bed before nine in the morning. And now I have the freedom to dictate that and say, well, this is what I'm going to do. And my clients all know that I have seasonal affective disorder. So they're very mindful of the fact that, especially my UK clients, and then going further east, the, the US clients are great because obviously they're behind us. So it, it doesn't matter for them. You know, their, their morning is my afternoon. So it's great. But anyone that's in the UK or going further east from me, they're very mindful of the fact that I've got seasonal affective disorder and they're respectful of it. That's something I couldn't have dreamed of when I was working. I was mainly working in hospitals. I even worked in a prison for a while. And those places are very, you have to be in at a certain time you know because you're you're dealing with either mentally ill or physically ill patients or you're dealing with prisoners so this isn't a case of like oh i'm half an hour late it's like, that's not gonna work so you know so that was the main reason why i got into having my own business then moving further as my business developed then it became because I, I was a freelancer i was a copywriter as mike said in the introduction and um, i then went into ghostwriting so writing books for other people and then what I realized was I was on this treadmill. So as a freelancer, even when there's loads of work coming in and you don't want to say no to any piece of work because you start thinking, but what, what if I don't get this work coming in next month or the next quarter? So even when you've got too much work, you want to say yes to everything because even when you're doing well, you're on top of your game, you're making a ton of money. You're thinking, well, what if this goes away? And if this goes away, then I need to have a pot of money to tide me over until things turn around again. So I was working easily 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours a week working for myself. And now I'm thinking, oh, great. So now I have the freedom to wake up at nine in the morning, but I'm working till about 11 at night. That's, so now the diff freedom came, well, how do I create something? Because as a freelancer, I was creating things for other people. Therefore, I've just essentially given myself a job. So I thought, well, how do I move into creating things that I can uh, get people to pay for time and again? That way I can get a consistent level of income and that even if I'm not working, I'm still earning money. 
So that's how I moved into setting up the publishing business. And that way it can, I'm still making money. I've got a, a membership program. I've got 68 authors at the moment in the membership program. And that isn't dependent on me. Well, it is dependent on me on time in that I do two classes a week in there. And then I usually have a guest in there a couple of times a month who will do like a guest masterclass. And then I do pop into the community once a day just to answer any questions. But otherwise than that, it's it's a video program and they're teaching themselves how to write a book. So that way it's not dependent, completely dependent on time versus money coming out of the business. So it's freedom for different things. And then the final thing for me has been once I reached a level of success, as my business used to be called Let's Tell Your Story Publishing, and it still is my publishing imprint. Um, and then in 2021, I reached a level of success where I thought I can actually be really choosy about who I want to work with. So then the freedom came. I really want to work with people who are genuinely making a difference in the world. So I would say 50 percent of my clients are not vegan. So I don't specifically only work with vegans, even though I am the vegan publisher. So my operation is completely vegan. My entire team is vegan. Anyone who wasn't vegan has already been let go about two years ago when I rebranded. It was a case of I can't exactly call myself the vegan publisher and then have somebody who loves steak on my team. That's not going to work for me, you know. So, so my You fired people because of what they eat. <laughs> I didn't fire them. They got, they got a year's notice, I'll have you know. Like, I did tell them. I said, I'm rebranding. So I'm going, I'm going to become the vegan publisher. I'm now specifically going to be targeting not just vegans, but people who are making a difference. So I've got a lot of B Corp um, owners who are in my program. Um, I've got a few nonprofits are in my program. Any business or brand that is genuinely making a difference, whether that's to do with animals and ethics, but sometimes it can be do with, you know, social entrepreneurship, for example. I've got a number of social entrepreneurs who are working with me to write a book. So people who are genuinely making a difference, because I do feel over the last 10 years, it's kind of become, I don't know, it's um, it's marketing now, isn't it? There's a lot of greenwashing and there's a lot of people who say that, oh, yeah, I'm doing all these amazing things. And it's really just a marketing ploy. Whereas they're not really doing the things that they should be doing. So I kind yeah. of target people, you know, people like who who are going for B Corp status. You can't really go for B Corp status unless you really, because it costs a lot of money and there's a lot of time and energy involved. I'm going through B Corp accreditation myself. So trust me, I know. It's almost like I've got an extra job now to do, to do all of these forms and make sure that I'm, I'm monitoring everything so then I can be assessed properly and I can get my B Corp status. So it's hard work. So for someone to put themselves through that, it shows that person really, really does believe in using their brand for genuinely good purposes. So that that is my latest freedom, being able to say, this is the sort of people I want to work with and I may not want to work with other people. So it was a very long-winded answer. I apologise, Callum. But yeah, I couldn't answer that in one go because and it'll change again. I'm sure in the next couple of years, my once I've achieved the success that I want to with the vegan publisher, then the next phase of my success, I'm pretty sure the freedom will look different again. But this is what I mean. Freedom means different things to different people. And even to the same person, it means different things at different points in their life. Definitely. You're building your freedom, aren't you, slowly? That's it. That's it. And I mean, I could even contradict myself at some point in the future, something that I thought was freedom previously, I'd be like, no, that's not freedom anymore now, that's now handcuffs. So, and that's fine, but it's all about 
empowering yourself to go for whatever version of freedom you want. Yeah. Do you, do you think more businesses, entrepreneurs, or just people in general would be more, um, do, you, do you think they'd, they'd have more of these sort of like ethical concerns um, and work with and work to maybe solve ethical concerns or be a bit more philanthropic with their with their money and stuff if they had that kind of freedom yeah. do you think that, that's something that comes from that yeah I think that's I'm glad you said that Colin that's huge that's something I I have to I've talked a lot about you know on other podcasts and also in lives and things I've done especially when you know if it almost feels like, you know, I, I almost feel for some people, you know, I've, I've so many people, I call them, they, they start apologizing to me that they're not vegan. It's just like, I'm pretty sure I'm not the queen of veganism. You don't need to apologize to me that you're not vegan. But I always get you know, like, oh, I love that you're a vegan. I'm sorry. It's just not something I think I'll be able to do. So why are you apologizing to me that you're not vegan? I always say that, you know, it's very, very difficult to be magnanimous and to to be the sort of person that gives and cares when you're so worried about your own financial future and your family's financial future so it's something i talk about in the book um i talk about the fact that you know that sometimes even making money or or making lots of profits is a dirty word especially in the sort of ethical sustainable b corp you know area it, there's always this, this idea that you kind of almost should be just giving things away but the thing is, if you don't look after your and your family's financial future, then you don't have the energy to look after anybody else. So you've got to make sure that you're OK from a financial point of view and also from a health point of view. You've got to be OK. And then when you're OK, you now have the brain space to think of others. So that's when you go, OK, well, what can I do in my local community to help out? What can I do in the wider world to help out? You know, what causes are there? Uh, what you know levels of oppression can I go against you could you can't think like that I wasn't thinking like that when I was a freelancer because I was so busy thinking about my bank account and you know even like I said even when it was high I was I almost had this sort of standard level of anxiety throughout even when I was doing well I was still anxious because I was thinking but what if I don't have lots of copywriting work the next quarter so now I don't want to spend the money that I've created. I can't even enjoy the money that I've generated because I'm thinking, but what if next quarter is bad? So I best save that. So even when I'm doing well, I'm not doing well, if that kind of makes sense. And when I wasn't doing well, I definitely wasn't doing well. So I couldn't at the time. I didn't, you know, I was vegan, um, you know, when I was freelance. I've been vegan since 2012. So I, I've, I've been vegan that whole time. But what I mean by vegan is like I just abstained from eating meat and dairy. I just abstained, but I didn't do anything. The only right. reason I'm able to do so much for the movement now and the wider social movement is because I've now reached a level of financial success where I, I can breathe a sigh of relief now because I think, okay, the money's pouring in. My family are happy. They're looked after. Everything is okay. Now I have the space in my brain to think, well, where else can I help out but you can't really help out if you if you're worried about yourself yeah yeah I, I i was uh i can't remember who said it i was listening to something recently and they were talking about poverty and how solving if you want to save the planet then 
taking people out of poverty is probably the fastest way to do it or the most efficient way I to do love it that. where did you read was that a book that you read because I, uh, I was on a podcast it was definitely I was on, on a podcast, podcast. I have to let me know which podcast that is because I love to listen to that I've always said that something I've always said is like um I always say a lot of people say well why are you vegan and there seems to be three main reasons that people get into veganism so either it's to do with animal ethics or it is to do with uh, the planet sustainability and the fact that animal agriculture just is completely unsustainable um, or it seems to be to do with health there is growing literature and growing reports now showing they're going whole food plant-based sorry not junk food so if you just eat impossible burgers every single day it's not going to work but if you go whole food plant-based you can reverse i mean one of my clients is actually writing a book at the moment she's a doctor she's based in the states and she now has so much clinical evidence that shows that all the diseases that we just think are old age diseases or middle-aged diseases such as type 2 diabetes you know heart problems we just kind of think you know someone gets into their 50s we just kind of go oh well you know you're getting on pet that's you know that's just how it is no it's all a lie if you're if you eat whole food plant-based you don't get those things it's not actually a consequence what's, of age what's the book that she's writing because i i would love to read that well that it's not published yet she's still in the planning stages so she hasn't even started writing it but i would let you know but there's a book yeah, oh, there's a book that um you might want to read like that's already been published by one of my authors it's called protein inc she's also based in the state she's in texas um that is a fantastic book because that talks about um tiffany uh, the author she uh was born with congenital defects so she was born legally blind um and she had heart and kidney defects so she was pretty much told you're probably not going to get like beyond your 40th birthday she's now she's now fitter than she was as a baby like a lot of people will say you know when they've done really well it's like i'm fitter than i was in my 20s or i'm fitter than i was in my teens I don't know anyone who can say I was fitter, <laughs> I'm fitter now than I was when I was born because she was born with so many defects. And she was told by every doctor that she would meet that this, this is just, this is just, you have to deal with it. You were born like this. She went whole food plant-based and she started reversing everything. So it just goes to, so her book is all about her journey and all of the studies that she's found to say that all of this stuff that we're being told um, there's a really good documentary you might want to watch, uh, Mike, um, called uh, "The Trying to Kill Us." The trying um, to kill us. They're trying awesome to name. kill us. Um, and it's it's a it's based in the states. Um, I believe uh, one of the executive producers is Billie Eilish. Um, she said that that lady gets around. She's only like wow. 23 or something like that. She's just yeah. incredible. Um, but yeah, she's like making incredible music, <laughs> and then she's also executive producer on this documentary as well. Um, but it shows the links between um, fast food and um, the pharmaceutical um, com uh, companies. And a lot of the directors in fast food companies are also the directors in the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Now, think about that. I mean, if you think about it, this is the, the it's like almost evil genius. In fact, it's not almost. It is evil genius. So if you think about it, what they're doing is they're pushing a type of food to us for us to eat which makes us ill over several decades. And now you have to have their drugs to combat the disease that they gave you in the first place with the food. So you think about it, you have got a customer for life now. It's, I mean, it's, it's, if you think about it, it's even more evil genius than what the tobacco companies were doing in the, in the 40s and 50s. 
you know, um, because yeah. at least the tobacco companies didn't prey on you until you were at least in your teens or 20s. And then they were doing the whole smoking is cool thing and getting you addicted for life. What's happening right now and has been happening for several decades is getting people addicted on certain foodstuffs pretty much as soon as they're born. And then because of the diseases you get because of all this stuff, hey, we've also got the drug to help you as well. So you literally have somebody, you have a customer from birth till death. So it is evil genius. So, yeah, that's what Tiffany talks about. Um, a lot of my uh, clients who, who talk about the plant, you know, plant based health kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of like the three main routes I would say people get into this way of life, um, either through animal ethics or through plant based health. Um, or to do with climate change and sustainability. But I always say that I came into veganism because of animal ethics. But over the years, when people ask me, say, what are you vegan for? And they're expecting me to say health or for the animals or for climate change. I always say for humans. Um, because and something, again, that's actually in um, They're Trying to Kill Us. It's a really, really good documentary. I recommend you both watch it. Um, one of the other things they uncover in they're trying to kill us is the animal agriculture um, industry is specifically preying on low-income families, on migrant workers, on ex-prisoner populations. So I will say I started off I'm vegan for the animals, but I would say now I'm vegan for the humans because what the animal agriculture is doing is preying on all of us as humans. We kind of think of the animals as the victims or even the planet as a whole as a victim, and it is, and are the animals. But we're also the victims. We're also being preyed on. Um, one gentleman told me, it's like, if you think about it, we're being farmed. And it's like, yeah, we're actually being farmed as well. So you're absolutely right what you said, Callum. If you've got to raise people out of poverty, and you've got to, and they've got to have health. I mean, if you think about it, the biggest wealth you will have is your health. <clears throat> it doesn't matter how much money you have. You could be a billionaire, but if your health is down the toilet, you don't have a great life. You'd probably be happy to say, you know what, you can have my billions, but if I can have my health back, that is the biggest wealth you can have. So you've got to make sure that all human beings have basic standards of health and they have basic standards of, of income. We're never going to get out. This is getting very deep, isn't it, guys? But we're never going to get out <laughs> of the problems that we've got in this world if people still don't have a basic standard of health and a basic standard of living. It's never going to happen. There's always going to be problems until we solve those two problems. I read that in a book recently and it changed how I do everything. So, so I, I've started doing an hour and a half every morning in the gym now. Um, I'm, I, I do eat protein, eat a ton of protein. But I, basically the, the, the saying was, um, if you don't look after your body, where are you going to live? And when, as soon as I read it, it was like, it was one of them things that was like, holy shit, I've never thought of it like that before. Like yeah. I, you always think I'm, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. With it. But you kind of, I've got one house and it's your body and, and everything else is kind of irrelevant bullshit that just surrounds you. And I can't remember what book was it, Callum, where we read that. Was it the one thing? Uh, yeah, I think it was really recent. So I think it was that one. I yeah. do know the quote. I haven't read that book, but it's, it's obviously done really well because I know the quote. But yeah, yeah. It, it, it's true. If you think about it, you can always make more money especially because we're lucky enough to have our own businesses that are doing well. So you can always make more money, but you, you, you only have your one body and you can't make more time. Those are the two things. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You only have your one body and you can't unfortunately slow down time. So 
you have to make sure they have those things. And if you think about all the problems that we have in the world, it's because of people don't don't have those two things. So they're not healthy. Well, they're not a lot of people around the world are not healthy from birth. If you think about it, you know, like a well, I wouldn't say from birth, but as soon as kids are weaned off their mother's milk, guess what they go on to? A milk cover for a completely different species that wasn't even designed for it. So straight away from about 18 months their health is deteriorating it's not getting any better because if you think about it you'll remember this mike you're 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 old like me so you'll remember um remember in the 80s when it was sort of like uh, breast is best because oh, yeah. i don't can because at the time a lot of women were sort of like you know not choosing not to bre breastfeed and they were giving formula milk um to their uh, babies not their fault because they'd been preyed upon by all the formula companies or right throughout the 60s and 70s saying that our milk is better than your milk so that is what you should be so then the government said no no that's wrong breast is actually best you'll never be able to create milk in a lab that can beat what's in a woman's breast it's designed for a baby so therefore breast is best and they were saying that it's literally designed it's beautifully designed for a baby well it's like well guess what cow's milk is beautifully designed for cows why the hell are we drinking it then of course it's going to give us problems it's all like it's a bit like sticking petrol into a diesel car of course it's not going to work you know so we're doing that right from from toddlers they are drinking milk even vegetarians and you know i have a lot of vegetarians go oh i'm vegetarian i'm like that's great you're still destroying your health unfortunately thank you for being vegetarian but you're still destroying your health so yeah if you don't have your own health how can you care about anything else do you think if more people was forced to learn marketing, they'd understand what the bigger companies are doing? Because I think I think it's mm -hmm. it's naive to marketing. As soon as you understand marketing, you can see exactly what. Like I went for a meal the other day with my my missus and two kids, um, and she 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 walked away from the table. She said she brought me a coffee and she went, "Oh, I forgot to get you a biscuit with that." And then she come back with the biscuit with 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 four biscuits, right? And she passed uh, and she put them on the table and she went, oh, I, I brought you, you're only supposed to get one with your coffee, but I brought you one each. And I thought, and, and I thought that's straight out of uh, influence by Robert Caldini. Um, yes. And he talks about the the, the, the the psychology of persuasion and things like that. And, and straight away, I thought to myself, that was fucking genius the way you just did that. Uh, but it's because I understand marketing and I get what they're doing. And she got a big tip. <laughs> Not for, the, I probably wouldn't have given her as big a tip if I hadn't spotted what she did, but I spotted what she did and I thought that was so beautifully done but i think if people was actually forced to understand marketing then a lot of the things that the big big brands do maybe they couldn't get away with do you agree with that yeah i think that's absolutely true i think that's why we can see things like that because when you have your own business you are forced to learn marketing you're not going to survive unless you learn marketing so yeah, absolutely. It's quite telling that I went vegan in, in 2012 and I set up my freelancing business in 2013. So there's only less than 12 months in between it. So my journey in marketing and business almost is parallel with my journey into veganism. So I'm very aware I can almost spot what they're doing. I, I sit there and watch. Sometimes, honestly, adverts are more fun than actually watching the shows. You know, so you have people like, oh, I love Netflix because you don't get adverts on them. I'm like, I want to watch the adverts. It's interesting to see what they're doing in the adverts and how they're, how they're influencing people to buy something, you know. Um, and it's interesting over the last few years, this is whole, um, there's one now at the moment, I think it's Waitrose. 
yeah, waitress or like it's something about their pigs are the happiest pigs. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure if I'll be happy if I'm going to be slaughtered before I'm <laughs> a teenager. I imagine that's like basically taking a very happy kid. It's, Sorry, kid, you're not going to have your first period because we're going to kill you before then because we need to eat you. I'm like, mm. <laughs> so but they're doing yeah. the whole, it's happy pigs, you know? And then the, the other one, the, the free range eggs, you know, it's sort of like, if people knew the legal definition of free range, it's, I think that it's less than a meters. I think it's like half a meter, or maybe it's like 60 or 65 centimeters space that chicken needs to have before the next chicken. And then it's free range. Now I'm pretty sure that in your head, when you're thinking free range, you're thinking of them literally running around a field and having an amazing yeah. time. It's like, no, legally they're only allowed to, I mean, if you give, if you give a chicken a meter before another chicken, that's apparently a very happy chicken. It's got so much room to move around in and have fun. And then obviously because of the proximity of them, they have to have their beaks clipped. That's done without any anesthetic or anything. So their beaks are chopped off so they don't peck each other. I mean, do you know what I mean? If, if, but it's you, when you understand, I really, I'm really glad that you said that, Mike, when you understand marketing, and especially as a former copywriter, I know all about creating a need, agitating the problem, giving them an amazing solution. I know the full structure so I can see it in adverts. And I don't think it's in itself is bad. I think there's nothing wrong with agitating a problem to sell a solution. The problem I have is when it's used in a way to create... If, if you think about it, if you if you're solving a real problem, then there's nothing wrong with that because what you're doing is letting somebody understand who maybe who has a problem, but maybe they don't understand how big that problem is. So you kind of need to almost be a little bit cruel to be kind later. You do have to agitate the problem to then give them the solution. My issue is when you are creating a problem, first of all, that doesn't exist. That's what a lot of the food companies have done. You mentioned protein before. And I always think, and I'm not criticizing you here. I was the same. I used to be a proper, I used to have steak that was so rare. It was blue. It was called blue steak. It's not even rare. There's one place in the Northeast does, that does it. Actually, there might be more now. I don't know because I haven't eaten any meat for over a decade. Um, but you have to sign a waiver to eat it every single time. What? Wow. Yeah, because it was so rare. So they did rare steak and they did medium and well done. But if you wanted the blue steak, you had to sign something because if you became ill from it, they don't want you suing them. Because what they're saying is, well, you made the choice to have it blue. So that is on you, basically. So we're not supposed to eat raw meat at all as humans. No. <clears throat> That's the other thing. Like, you know, oh, we're carnivores. I'm not... You go and eat. I, I've I've seen a cat eat raw meat. It's enjoying it. You know, it's really enjoying it. We don't enjoy raw meat, so how are we carnivores? Also, the other thing, we've got canine. Have you seen our canine? If if cats could see our canine, they would laugh so hard. They'd be like, "That's not canine. That's just a molar that's got a little bit sharp. That's not." A <laughs> you go and try and tear someone's neck out with your, your canine. And you'll find you might leave a love bite, and that's about it. You're not going to get yeah. very far with your canines. So you don't have canine teeth. We just call it canine, but it's not even canine. So uh, something that you said earlier, and, you know, I, I was a real steak person. I loved blue steak. And um, my favorite thing was um, cheese and cold meats. That was the way I even said yes to someone proposing to me because he took me to a restaurant and gave me cheese and cold meats. 
he really knew how to get a yes from me. I'm not sure I would have said yes otherwise. We didn't work out. So I really wouldn't, shouldn't have said yes. But he gave me cheese and cold meats. I was so happy. I said yes to whatever he wanted. So I was really, really into cheese, meat, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and again, I, I fell for the whole protein thing. Because it's like, well, that's where you get protein from, right? So it's good. We should be eating animals and animal products and all that kind of stuff because we're getting protein. It was only as I started to transition into becoming vegan and listening to a lot of podcasts, meeting a lot of cool people. I'm actually, hopefully, in the next few weeks, I'm hoping to meet Kip Anderson, who's the uh, the director of Cowspiracy and Seaspiracy on Netflix. Oh, cool. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> one of my clients who's writing a book with me he's looking to turn her book into a Netflix documentary. Well, a documentary, hopefully, they'll be wow. taken by Netflix. But That's we assume cool. Netflix will say yes, because they've already taken... I mean, he's he did Forks... Yeah, he did Forks Over Knives, Cowspiracy and Seaspiracy. Yeah. So um, I'm pretty sure with Netflix having all of his other documentaries, they're pretty much going to sit be happy with this documentary as well. Um, so meeting... you know, I've met a lot of cool people over the last 10 years doing what I do. And especially in the last two years since I rebranded as the vegan publisher. So they're really helping my education. And there's one gentleman who asked me and said, OK, you know, uh, I get where you're coming from with the whole protein thing. You know, the, the biggest issue that vegans think they have in the beginning is like, oh, where am I going to get my protein? I was my was my biggest worry. I was like, where am I going to get my protein from? So where'd oh you get God, it? I'm going to eat loads of beans. Oh, my God, I'm going to be farting all the time. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> the thoughts and back in 2012 when i went vegan those are the things i was thinking about i was like but i don't, I don't want to become like this weak ass person who like can't even lift a shopping bag you know i want to you know at, at that time i was in my 30s so i was still young but my body was slowing down as it does in its 30s and i was thinking is this a really good time to go vegan maybe if i was a teenager i could cope with it but you know i'm in my 30s you know and i worried about my health I was only after meeting this gentleman and he said, okay, well, if we need protein from animals, whether that's, you know, their flesh or whether that's their secretions, such as milk or eggs and stuff like that, where are those animals getting it from? And immediately I went, well, they just create it. They just have, I mean, they, they have protein inside them because meat has protein in it. It's, it's flesh. Yeah. It's got protein in it. And it's like, oh, that's great. So that means if I sliced you up and ate you, you'd be full of protein. I'd be like, well, yeah, I guess guess I would. It's like, so where's your protein come from then? From animals. So I'm like, okay, so where's the animals? From? So I'm going around in circles now. So I'm like, so yeah. where are the animals getting their protein from? I'm like, oh, so does that mean they, they're not making protein? And it's like, well, if you're not making protein, they can't be making protein because we're all genetically the same. We're only, I don't know if you know, we're about 98% genetically the same as a pig. We're about 91% genetically the same as a cow. So well, most of the animals walking around the planet were somewhere between 70 to 99% genetically the same. So if we can't make protein, why would all these animals be magically making protein and if they can magically make protein, then why are we not magically making protein? So is it just grass like, that they get it from? So then I was like, well, where are they getting from? It's like, well, what are these animals eating? Plants. Oh. So that's that's that was a light bulb moment. It's like <laughs> you don't the protein that you I'm not saying you're not getting protein from meat or eggs, Mike. So you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not <clears> 
breaking your brain and thinking you're getting no protein whatsoever. You are getting protein, but you're getting secondhand protein. So the animal has protein by eating plants. The animal is then killed. And then you are getting the protein from the animal. And as soon as you add a middleman into anything, guess what happens? It's nowhere near as efficient. But how would you? So, so let's say you're trying to eat because I eat 200 grams of protein a day, right? So, like, say, uh -huh. say, say, yesterday I'll have had a steak, a big steak, which will have been I don't know 14 ounces or something, which will have like nearly 100 grams of protein in it, and then I'll have had 15 strands of asparagus, which in those 15 there's only about I think it was 10 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me to eat 200 grams of protein, let's say I was just eating asparagus in a day. I'd have to eat, I don't even want to work that out. It's like 300. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my God, don't be eating that much. I, yeah. mean, I like asparagus, but I mean, that's a bit much. Um, yeah, it tends to be, if, you, if you're looking at beans, pulses, I love chickpeas. I'm forever sticking chickpeas into my curries and stuff like that. Um, yeah, beans and pulses are the best places and nuts. But nuts are massive like, calories, aren't they? I throw like cashews and hazelnuts and all sorts into my curries. Um, and then that way you're, you're but honestly i end up with more protein than most of my meat eater friends which is in, it's it's interesting because when i started off my journey i had so many people asking me but where'd you get your protein from yeah whereas now i go around asking meat eaters but where are you getting your protein from because your protein is nowhere near as good as mine so you need to eat more which then you end up meeting you end up eating more sugar and fat which actually has the opposite effect because I'm going, it's, I also, I always use the analogy. It's a bit like, let me give you, let me set the scene, Mike. Let's say we're young again now. So we're not, you know, we're not boring old people who just, you know, sit at home and watch Netflix and stuff like that. Say we're young again. And I feel like you and I, you know, come from similar backgrounds. So we're going to some mental house party. Okay. So we decide to drive there. For some reason, we, we don't like each other enough to give each other a ride. So we're, we're driving there in our separate cars. So we've got a little mini convoy going up and we're driving to this house party. And then we both run out of fuel. So we both find a petrol station and we both pull in. And then I go to my little bay and I take the pump and I start filling my car up with petrol. You go to your pump, but instead of going to your pump, like you don't get the actual pump out, you go to your boot, you take out a little jerry can. And then what you're doing is you're getting the pump, you're filling the jerry can, and then you're filling your car. Yeah. Well, after about three minutes, I've filled my car. I look over at you, you haven't even filled your, you've only filled your car maybe halfway full because you're filling your jerry can and then you're using your jerry can to fill your car. So I'm getting bored at this stage, Mike, and I'm going, okay, I really want to get crazy, so I'm off to the house party, but I'll see you there, mate. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. I'm already off. You're still filling your car. That's essentially what you do when you're eating animal products because what you're doing is you've now put an unwitting middle person in there so the protein goes into them. That's a cool ass story. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought were, I thought you would I'm, resonate with it because we've done these crazy things when we were in our yeah. teens and 20s going to like some really scary, dodgy house party, but you're still yeah. having a party <laughs> doing things that you really shouldn't be doing and probably taking things that you shouldn't really be taking. So I figured you'd actually like that story because it fit our previous lifestyle before we became bold and you know all old and boring and everything um but yeah that's kind of so now it's quite funny because i go around asking my meeting friends but where are you getting your protein from and they're like i should be saying that to you but it's actually the truth because so do you not I'm count like, any calories at all say again 
You don't, because like when when we got on here before, uh, you you was walking um on your on your treadmill and you stood up yes. now, I, I believe, um and yeah, well, you, I'm on it now and stood on it right now. I just thought you know I didn't want you to hear. I just thought it's disrespectful on a recording to have a treadmill. <laughs> I'll you, the treadmill for the podcast and I'll get back on it again. <laughs> You, you say in your book you used to be a size 20. Now, when I first met you, it was about four or five years ago in Barcelona. I just assumed you were one of them people that was super lucky and had great genes and would never put on weight. And every time I've, I've, I've seen you since, you've always looked like you're in great shape. But do you, obviously, since you've been vegan, do you need to count your calories at all? Or do you just eat whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as it's real food? I, I can eat pretty much whatever. That's actually, that is another book that one of my clients wrote. So it's called Freedom from a Toxic Relationship with Food. She's based in New York. Um, and this lady spent over 40 years starving herself. She was anorexic and bulimic. Um, and the only thing that stopped her from starving herself by, was by going whole food plant-based. I do, I specifically say whole food plant-based rather than vegan. The reason why is there is a lot of vegan junk food. And don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking vegan junk food. I love my Impossible Burger every so often. But if you live on that stuff, then yes, you do have to count calories, Mike. But if you live on whole food plant-based, what I mean by whole food plant-based is it comes from plants. It doesn't come from any animals. So you're not doing the whole jerry can thing. You know, you're making sure you're going direct to source because that's the, the purest way that you're going to get any nutrients. Once it's gone through something else, if you think about it, there's always going to be a, a degradation that happens. Does that make yeah. sense? It's yeah. a bit like, you know, if you start off with a liter of water and you're playing one of those stupid party games where you have to pass the water down different people and see how much you're left with at the end, you're not going to be left with a liter of water at the end. You'd be lucky if you're left with 200 milliliters because things have fallen off during the way. It's the same thing when you're eating animals or animal products. The animal went to the source you're eating the animals, so it's degraded somewhat, whereas I'm going direct to source. But what I mean by whole food plant-based is it's from plants, but it's from whole foods. So it hasn't been, for example, bread is not whole food. Because if you think about it, until, it, I always think, think like a child. Imagine a child going through a wheat field. They have no concept that that turns into bread you can't even imagine it it's only when you're told oh yeah well we harvest this then we mill it down <clears> and then we add water and we do all this stuff to it and then it turns into bread and then the child goes oh my god i had no idea jerry so you want to if you can eat as much as possible whole food as in foods that are plant-based that look like it would do when it was on the tree or when it was in the soil so for example beans look like beans you know, chickpea looks like chickpea. Carrots look like carrots. That You know, you can envisage them in a field somewhere. As soon as you have something that you can't envisage what it was like, and you only know it because you're an adult now and you've seen pictures, and you, that's not whole food then. So I eat, I would say, about 90% whole food plant-based. And she's completely, Bobby is 100% whole food plant-based. And if you eat 100% whole food plant-based, you literally don't have to count calories. Because your body is now at its most efficient. You're going direct to source. So you're eating plants. You're not eating animals, animal products. Plus, it's plants that are not refined in any way. It's whole as it was. So when you do that, your body ends up the size that nature intended your body to be. So you're not going to be underweight and you're not going to be overweight. You're going to be exactly the right size. And it's the only reason she stopped starving herself. So right, you you you've obviously got a lot of friends who do whole food diet and they eat 
like you do. The um, health ones, yeah. I also have a lot of what I call my <clears> unhealthy <throat> vegan friends who just live on burgers and stuff. I'm the same. Yeah, I, the ones that do the whole, that food, the whole food <laughs> diet. I've got two questions. Do they have to? First one would be I'll, I'll ask them both before you before you answer. One, do they need to take? Is, is it vitamin B12? Do they need a supplement? Mm -hmm. And number two, are any of them fat? <laughs> okay, if you're whole food plant based, uh, like I said, it's impossible. I'm not even 100% whole food plant based. I'm about, I would say, 90% whole food plant based. Um, maybe like once a week, I'll be out somewhere and I'll have a burger or, you know, the latest vegan fried chicken, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't really, I don't step on the scales. I don't sit there. I don't even know how much I weigh, to be honest, Mike. I don't care because I know I'm the right size I need to be for my, for my height. And also for the age I'm, I'm now, I'm going to be 45 in a few weeks. So I'm just, I know that I'm where I need to be. So I don't really measure myself or weigh myself or anything like that. Um, yes, you can be overweight. That was something when I went vegan in 2012, you literally couldn't be overweight as a vegan. You couldn't be. Now in 2023, oh hell yes, you could be obese as a vegan because if you're eating basically the, the McDonald's burger that's come out there a couple of years ago, they've got a vegan burger now at McDonald's, don't they? I haven't had it, so I don't know what it's like. Um, but there's a vegan burger. If you go into there and you're eating that lunch and dinner every single day, you're gonna get fat. In fact, you're gonna be obese. So yes, absolutely. But I don't. I mean, I don't really have. And there's some uh, some of the whole food plant based movement have a real problem against sort of vegan junk food i see where they're coming from i do see where they're coming from but the way i see it is you've got to pick your battles and someone who lives on junk food surely you know if they're living on non-vegan junk food so they're eating a big mac most weeks and they're eating kfc fried chicken if they move on to the vegan versions it's still bad for them, but it is still lesser of the two evils. So the way I say it in my head is I would love to live in a world where there was no vegan junk food. But at the same time, I do love it because it's it's helping people who are addicted to junk food still do better. It's not good for them, but it's going to be better for them than the non-vegan junk food. It's like methadone you know? for right. smackheads. Pretty much. I, I'm not yeah. yeah. an analogy. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So yeah. that's I, I, I'm, I'm an advocate for vegan junk food. I don't really, I try to limit it and I tend to really only eat it when I'm out and about and I can't get anything healthy. So that's what I will have. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm an advocate for it because I just think you've got to meet people where they are. Telling somebody, it, it's a bit like, you know, when you do, you know, your New Year's resolutions, right, I'm going to quit smoking, I'm going to quit drinking, I'm going to lose 10 pounds and by literally by not even february by two weeks into january you've given all that up because it's overwhelming you've got to pick one thing and just do that and then next year you can pick something else so if i tell somebody who's you know like a typical student for example who you know is young enough for their bodies to cope with junk food on a regular basis i tell that person that not only do they need to be vegan they also need to be whole food plant-based it's just overwhelmed they're just gonna be like yeah, I can't do that. So yeah. I'm I'm grateful that there's now vegan alternatives because it's still got to be better for them than the non-vegan version. You know, yeah, it's also and, about where the money's going too. Exactly, but it's not going to be great for them. Um, so yeah, that that's that's I started noticing that. I think it was 2017. That was when like 
it, it really veganism really took off um and i started to notice overweight vegans and i was like no it's idea. like a unicorn. <laughs> I was like, no, how it was just impossible. You know, when I went vegan in 2012, it was impossible to be overweight as a vegan. Until the impossible burger showed up. It was Until impossible. the impossible. <laughs> the obese. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the mistake I made. It's funny you were talking about um New Year's resolutions and like dietary stuff because yeah. I read um well, I, I made a New Year's resolution of, of years ago probably five years ago now to stop eating meat that was one of my resolutions and um i just moved to asia so it was kind of i felt it was kind of easier for me because meat in i found meat in southeast asia was you know you talked about marketing of it like there is a degree of marketing but the way that they treat animal products i found in i was living in hong kong so there was um sort sort of china the way that it's treated over there is quite different and coming from like you know having that nicely packaged everything looks like you know it's not, it doesn't look like a dead piece of a piece of dead animal it looks you know quite appetizing in, in some it's made to look appetizing but it wasn't really made to look that appetizing in asia i found um and when you're walking past some of the markets and there's like you know they say if the if abattoirs had glass walls we'd all be vegan don't they so it was a similar kind of concept to that because you know i lived in thailand in phuket and i traveled all around asia and i did accidentally walk into a wet market which also makes me laugh wet market it's a blood market what what are the floors wet with not with water they're they're full of blood and you know a lot of people in the west criticize that it's like oh my god it's it's like right so what you're saying is people who are honest enough to be doing their business in the public you're you're saying that's wrong not you not you specifically Callum I'm just saying in mm-hmm. general oh yeah no yeah wrong. I'm with you but as long as it's done behind closed doors then it's okay I'm like isn't that what the Nazis did <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I, I actually I, respect the Asians. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't want to watch it. I'm vegan. I'm I'm disgusted when I'm seeing them literally in the streets, you know, chopping heads off chickens because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, a customer's come in and then they actually choose a live chicken and like, oh, that one looks good to eat. And then they chop its head while it's there, while its friends are still in the cage watching this happening, knowing that's going to be them next. And people yeah. are horrified. But I'm like, but at least they're honest they, those people know where their food is coming from they actually saw their food alive yeah in their stomach there's a level of honesty there um i don't agree with it and they're not helping themselves health-wise by what they're doing but there is a level of honesty there as in i know where this has come from i know this is being that's why i always i sometimes get pushback from some vegans in that i don't support hunters but I empathize with hunters. I was about not to say the same thing. Not trophy hunters, by the way. They're just like the worst yeah. of the worst. They're just, they're not, let's not even talk about them. But I'm talking hunters who actually hunt to eat. Mm-hmm. There's a level of honesty there. You know, they're going out there, they're hunting, they're, they're killing something and they're bringing it back and they know that that was a living being. They saw it walk around as a living being. There's a level of honesty there. It's very dishonest to be going into Tesco's and, you know, getting yourself a ham roll because it's all nicely packaged and sliced up and, and it looks good in a sandwich. 
and not really thinking that that was part of a being, you know? Yeah. So there's a level of dishonesty that happens here. And I, I'm not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not sort of now advocating wet markets to get everywhere now or anything like that. But what I'm saying is we need to actually be uh, very cognizant of where our food has come from. Yeah. And if you can't watch something like that, then you don't really have any business eating it. Definitely. Uh, yeah. No business eating it. And no, that's talking about hunting as well, that people that give a lot of people that give hunters a really hard time. And I'm talking about hunters to feed their family are meat eaters. And I think like, it, if anything, like bef- hypocrisy is one of the things that like, triggers me super badly. And that is yeah. one of the main things I'm like, you, what you're doing is like less, less ethical, like by your own standards. Like it's crazy. Like, um, Somebody else to do it. I mean, if you think, I'm pretty sure Hitler didn't even visit any of the concentration camps. Not what they were, not the actual rooms, the gas chambers or anything. No. I mean, just to say hello to all of his guards and stuff like that. But he just got other people to do it. He didn't actually do any of it. So I suppose by that standard, that makes him a good person, really. Yeah, yeah. It is dirty. It is pretty crazy, and we'll get back to the Nazi thing because you actually talk about uh, book <laughs> burning. We'll get back, yeah. We'll put a pin in the Nazi thing for a second. Um, but... <laughs> well, that's one sentence I never thought I'd hear. Yeah, I don't, don't want to get quoted on that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the the reason that I stopped um, eating meat the first time, I'm I'm not going to apologize because you're not the queen of vegans, as you said. But uh, I ended up going back and started eating meat again. Uh, but the reason I stopped in the first place was because I read uh, Homo Deus, the book Homo Deus by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, I think. I think his name is. I butchered that. But he did Sapiens as well. We read Sapiens, me and Mike read Sapiens yeah. on the podcast. And um, we were both really shocked by the um, – he talks a lot about the birth of agriculture and how that – like there was something – yeah, sort of like – there was a nobility about the hunter gatherer back in the day where it was all sustainable. And it was one, it was like one with the land and there, there was reverence for the animals. And then it turned into agriculture and even agriculture of grains and how that enslaved us to have to keep uh, farming and doing this. And we were really shocked by all of those revelations, but I was going to tie it together because obviously you talk about the importance of books in general. And this is a book that changed my, sort of opinion on a lot of things um so in your opinion why are books so powerful um well i think it's the well you have to remember i mean even tv's only been around for a few decades same with radio um it's the piece of content that has lasted millennia you know if you think about it there's nothing else if you think about all the other content that we consume now um on a daily basis, it's usually online. So you've got social media, then you you may watch some TV, you may listen to some radio. I don't think I don't think I've listened to radio in about six or seven years now. Yeah, but radio is on its way out. Yeah, radio is on its so podcasts are in, so I do listen to podcasts, yeah. things like that. But they've literally been around for the last 20, 30 years. TV and radio maybe a little bit longer, a few decades. Um it's a piece of content that that was the piece of content that that is how ideas were recorded there was no other way to record ideas that was how to record ideas because before we could write we would pass down our ideas and stories through storytelling through telling each other but mm-hmm. that can't really go if you can think of like sort of a prehistoric version of going viral that's very difficult to go viral that way because it involves you being there telling people and you're hoping people retell it in the right way that you told them 
it's like Chinese whispers and that sort of thing. And also after you popped your clogs, that's it. You know, then you can't now tell your story anymore. Whereas if you, as soon as we learned how to write something down, that was a way of being able to write down a concept for that concept to live beyond you. So even if you've died, the concept still lives on and for it to be passed around without you not being around. So for millennia, it's been seen as sort of like the epitome of intelligence and you know the people who wrote down it was like you really have something to say um and i always think it's interesting now how a lot of people ask me but do people even read books much now and if you look at the actual readership yes it's plummeting and it keeps plummeting sadly it, it just keeps going down a year on year a year out it, it literally is plummeting however it's not really about how many people are reading it's the perception of a book i had this with one client recently he's um, in the middle of his book is going through editing right now and he said one of his biggest issues was well how many people would actually read my book and i said well i can't tell you that i mean i'm not mind reader so i don't know how many people are going to read your book but what the book is going to do is going to get you onto podcasts, it's going to get you onto, I just had one of my clients has just been on Canadian nationwide TV. Uh, she's on like, you know, like their breakfast TV, like our kind of, you know, this morning, but that the, the Canadian version of this morning, basically. Um, it's going to get you onto platforms where you can talk about your message, your concepts, your ideas. Does it really matter whether somebody is introduced to your concepts through reading your book or listening to you on a podcast or seeing a live on Facebook or, or LinkedIn or, you know, if they see you or they hear you on radio, does it really matter? And he's like, well, no, I just want people to understand these concepts. He's like, well, there you go. So it really doesn't matter how many people are reading. It's the perception that authors have. Um, and I always, I mean, the, the, the easiest way that I can explain this to you is, you know, think about when you say somebody is a, say somebody's well-read. What do you instantly think of that person? What Think of adjectives. What do you think of that person yeah. when I say someone's well-read? You instantly think like, oh, intelligent, you know, um, they're astute. They're, you know, they'll be very aware of what's happening in the world. Um, you know, those are the adjectives you start thinking about. If I say someone is a couch potato, what adjectives are you now thinking about? Thinking really <laughs> stupid. But if you think about it, if you're actually pragmatic about this, it's actually false. Because it really depends on what the what the person who's reading is reading and depends on the couch potato and what he's watching. Because if you think about it, if the couch potato is watching a ton of documentaries, he's actually doing better than the person who's reading, but probably just reading a load of crap. And yet the stereotype exists. When you say someone's well-read, the assumption is intelligence. The assumption is they're reading good books, great books with full of like world-changing concepts and ideas and that sort of thing. And the couch potato, the initial straight away, you think that somebody is watching crap on TV. And yet really it's, it could be completely wrong. It, it, it depends on the content of the TV and it depends on the content of the books that, that person is reading. But the stereotype exists. So that's why, I think that's why I focus, when I met Mike originally, I was doing copywriting and doing ghostwriting as well. Um, and the reason why I decided to kind of knock the copywriting completely, because I could have started teaching copywriting 
if you think about it, because I was copywriting and ghostwriting. And then I moved into now teaching people to write their own books instead of me writing it for them. What I could have done is I could have got into teaching people how to write their own sales pages or teaching people how to write their own email sequences and things like that. But I chose book publishing as opposed to all the other forms of content that I was creating for my clients because that was a piece of content that was getting them lots of recognition. That was a piece of content that's making them people think, oh, you're really intelligent. Do you want to come on my podcast? Oh, you're really cool. Do you want to go and do, you know, do you want to speak on my stage? It wasn't the sales page that was doing that. Sales pages are great. That's your moneymaker. That's where you send traffic to and you get people to buy the thing that you're selling. So sales pages are great. But put it this way, a sales page is not going to really get you onto a stage or you're never going to get a podcast. So I saw your sales page. I think it's amazing. I think you should be on my podcast. That's They're not going to say that. So that's why I focused on books because I thought that is how you can get a lot of visibility in a short amount of time. If you think about it as business owners, we spend a lot of time building credibility, you know, the old know, like, and trust and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that can take years to build up. Or you can write a book and you can shortcut that. And, you know, because because of the book, you end up on stages, you end up on podcasts. I've been in several newspapers now as well. And that instantly makes people think, oh, she really knows what she's talking about. And then that's shortcut the know, like, and trust factor. So people want to work with me very, very quickly. So, you know, I've gone from maybe a lead time of maybe six, seven months of people wanting to figure out whether I'm the real deal to working with me to now I have clients. I have some clients who literally just one meeting and like, yep. So how do I start this? How do I start the process? Can you send me the invoice so I can get started? Because they've seen me in all of these places and see me speak as well. They, there's this instant feeling of like, I, even though I didn't know they existed, I existed in their world for several months and I just didn't even know about it, if that makes sense. And then that way, when they've come to me and presented themselves to me, they're a new person to me, but they've known of me for months, sometimes longer. So they're, they're ready to work with me almost straight away. Yeah. You, you say it in your book. You actually say in your book, um, don't focus on becoming an authority before you write a book. Write a book and you'll automatically become an authority. And then you also say this one. I've actually just put it into the chat while you were talking because I thought this was a super powerful quote from your book. You have to think of your book as the key to the treasure and not the treasure itself. So when you're writing a business book, it opens up so many. And I know this because I've written five books. It yeah, opens yeah, up so, so many doors for you. Um, like I, I, it's a prime example is I never finished school. I can't spell. I can't read and write very good. But I've written books because you, when you write books, I've wrote and I said then instead of written. Uh, I, I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, <laughs> but, but because in books, and you, you go into detail about this in your book, that, that you if you keep the word short and you don't try and act like you're the most intelligent person in the world and you actually just get your concept across in an easy manner, people like to read your stuff. And I think that helped with me because I don't know any big words. Um, so <laughs> it kind of... It, it's kind of... You're like my ideal client, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I, I do get like a, a huge mix of people um, who want to, you know, want me to help them write a book. And 
it's it's quite funny i get people like you who come to me and the, the apologies start almost instantly it's like you know either it's like oh i'm dyslexic or you know i've ne I, I left school at 16 and and they're apologizing to me and i'm just going you have no idea how easy a client you're going to be it's the ones that are academic i've had some clients absolute i mean they won't mind me saying this because we're friends now but they were absolute nightmares because they come from an academic background. They don't even talk like that. They talk normally, just like we're doing. But suddenly, well, as soon as they start writing, it's like this this whole, it's like the exorcist or something. This other person comes in and inhabits their body. And now they're using ridiculous words. I'm just thinking, who are you? Who are you writing to here? Are you are you doing another PhD here? Because if you are, that's great. But if you're wanting to reach the average person. They're not going to be because I think where it comes from is this need to impress, which is yeah. fine when you're writing academically you because your audience are your peers, professors, you know, you, you do need to impress them. But that is not how you impress the average person on the street. You know, if you're I've actually got I've got three clients at the moment who are turning their PhD thesis into a book and the reason they've hired me is they've noticed that like the thesis is great but it's not resonating when i've given it to people who are not academic they've got tired after like the first chapter so they've hired me to help them turn that so i'm not even helping them write because in a sense the writing's already there it's in their thesis but we now need to translate it into normal language that everybody can understand so the fact that you don't know loads of big words is great. I love that. Yeah. But my editors, I've actually, I've I've taught my editors to, they use a, a tool which goes through, you can put in, I think, around about 5,000 words at any time. So they put in blocks of 5,000 words of, you know, one of my client's manuscripts, for example. And what it does is it gives them the, um, the reader age. And their instructions with me that it should not be over 14 years old. So the ideal reading age should be 12 to 14. Um, and I get pushback from some clients because they'll say, but my book is in 14 ages. It's for adults. So why does the reading age have to be for 12 to 14? So because people don't have a lot of time nowadays, they're reading in a hurry. You also have to remember that this isn't fiction. Fiction is different. People read fiction in a completely different way. Fiction, the, people who genuinely read fiction, it is a hobby of theirs. It's something they savor, it's something that they enjoy. So they slow down completely. They get immersed in the world. They want to build the characters in their brains. They want to build that story arc, do the whole world building that goes on in someone's head when they're reading a book. When people are reading nonfiction, specifically self-help, how-to guide style books, which is what I help people do because I'm helping business owners write books for their brands, they usually read at a much faster rate. And because they're reading at a much faster rate, because if you think about it, that's not really what they're not doing is reading for pleasure. What they're doing is give me the good stuff. You've promised them something on the cover. They've obviously got a problem and you've promised them a solution to their problem. So they're reading in a completely different way to the way they would read fiction. So they're reading fast. They're glancing through. Guess what happens? Their comprehension drops down to a young teenager. But they're not going to know that. Because unless you work in the industry like I do, like you guys didn't know that. I've only just told you now. But because they don't know that, do you think they're going to blame themselves when they don't understand something in your book? 
Nah. Exactly. It's like the old saying, you know, a poor workman blames his tools. You know, he doesn't blame himself. He blames his tools. It's the same thing that they'll just blame the author and say the author is not clear enough and it's rambling. When really it's their problem, the author was perfectly clear. It's because they were rushing through the book. So you have to be cognizant of that. And that is why all my editors are told, make sure all the manuscripts, you rewrite them so it fits for a 12 to 14 year old comprehension. That's cool. Was, uh, was the comprehension uh, element something that inspired you to put the quizzes at the end of the chapters in your book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, two reasons. First of all, comprehension, um, but also not just comprehension, Calum. It's also, I think we've, I think it's because as soon as the internet turned up, we've now just become these huge content consumers. I've got people in my program. I've got like, I've got my one-to-one -one clients um, and I have group coaching clients as well. And they're on a very structured, like you will get this done. And I can't, I don't know if you can tell by this guys, but I can be a bit of a bitch when I want to be. So when I, I'm a very nice person, but if I want to get people to do something, I will, I know how to crack the whip and get people to do, you know, stick to a program. And there's even things in my, in my contract that says you can get an extension for up to a certain number of months because you got to be nice, you know, things can happen in their lives so they can't stick to the structure, but it's not ongoing. Like literally if they, if it goes on, they, I will cut them off and they will not get a refund from me either. So they have that in the back of their heads. So those people, they get through the program at a reasonable amount of time. I would want to say about six to 12 months, they're usually published and they're off doing their thing with their book. But then I also have like a low ticket membership program. And that's for people who can't afford to work with me one-to-one -one or via group coaching. So those guys, they just pay me, I think it's $47 a month. And it's just like an ongoing monthly membership. And they've got step-by-step -step videos showing them exactly how to plan, write, edit, even do their own design and publish the book if they're on a shoestring budget. Um, and I do go in there and give them support, you know, and I do a couple of weekly Q&A sessions where I jump on for an hour and people can jump on and ask questions. And that's all I do. I've got 68 people in that. Do you want to know how many people have actually are still paying me $47 a month but haven't even started the most about thir 32 i counted some yeah. of them wow. since january so they paid me they've already paid me about 500 dollars for what what do you pay me 500 dollars for i mean i'm not complaining i'd rather my bank account than yours but yeah. like why aren't you on start then i've got 12 people who are my stars they're actually you know they're in there every week and they're doing something but even then some of them have been in there since the beginning of the year They've only just finished planning their books. They haven't even started writing their books. And we're now in, we're now August. I launched it in January of this year. So we're eight months in. If people wanted well, was... to join join your group coaching, because there might be a lot of people on here. I mean, if they want to find out what the URL was you mentioned earlier, then the, it's inside this book. We're not going to tell you that. But if they want to join your group coaching, where do they, where do they go to join that group coaching? If they just go to the veganpublisher.com and then all of my programs are there. But yeah, it's um, it's it's frustrating, you know, because I really I had so many emails last year and so many messages on social media saying I really want to work with you, but I can't afford to work with you, you know, on a one to one or a group coaching basis, because all of those clients, all my group coaching and one to one clients, they tend to be people who already hit a level of success. So people like some, you know, people like you too, you know, people who've already, you're quite seasoned in your business, 
you know, you're doing well and you want to go to that next level. Now you want to be on TV, you want to be on radio, you want to, you know, you want to do those kinds of things. But then I was, I was getting all these emails from people who are just starting their brands. So they don't really have the money to be working with me on a one-to-one basis or a coaching or on a group coaching basis. So they're like, how can you help us? And I was like, I'm not really sure how to help you. Because I got so many emails and so many messages, I thought, okay, well, let me put all my expertise into a video program. And then I'll make it as cheap as possible. It'll just be like a monthly rolling subscription. There's no contracts. I'm not holding people. So you have to be in there for a year or six months. You can literally leave and you can come back. The only caveat is that some people have got like a founder's rate. If they leave and came back, they would now pay the normal rate. You know, and of course, I, I could raise my prices at any point. So if you leave, you'll pay the raise price. If you stay in there, you're locked in at your whatever price you're in. But apart from that, you can leave and come back whenever you want. I feel so proud. I am proud of it. I'm very, very proud of it. And my 12 superstars who are actually doing things, I'm excited for them. But I've got 68 people in there and 12 people who are active. And the other people, they kind of pop in and they go off and they're still paying me. And yet, and this is what I mean, we've become content consumers where people, we buy things and I'm guilty of this as well. I've bought into programs. I did the first video and then things happened in my life and it's still there, you know, and that's what it is. So so a very long winded way of answering your question, Callum. With books, it's, it's a case of the reason why I put exercises at the end of each of my chapters and it's something i recommend all of my clients do as well is it's not just about comprehension but you're checking that that person is actually taking in what you're saying because if you think Mm -hmm. about it we live in a world that's it's full of self-help books like literally you can't move for self-help books now we should all be like angels by now there should be halos around us by now we should be so enlightened in every aspect of our lives we should be having the best we honestly should have the best businesses we should have the best work-life balance we should have the best health we should have the best relationships with our friends and our family we should have the best personal relationships and romantic relationships we should be having the best sex of our lives if you think if you look at how many self-help books there are when it comes to sex we should all be like living amazing lives so why are we not and that's because we're, we're just reading books and we're not implementing what we read. So if you yeah. give people exercises and things to do, I mean, they can still ignore it. I mean, you can't take, you know, that old saying, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But at least take the horse to water. And then if it doesn't want to drink, there's nothing you can do. And that's why I put exercise at the end of each of my chapter, because the people who really do want to learn, they'll be like, oh, okay, let me just let me just go back that chapter and find out and answer that question. And now it's going to stay in their head. Because otherwise people do just read books as with other content. They're just blindly, it's just going in one in one ear and out the other. They're not really going to retain it and certainly not going to implement it. I found I didn't know the answers. I didn't, I subconsciously knew the answers when I read the questions at the end, but it got me thinking back to, oh shit, what was the answer? And then some of them you said, which two? And on occasion I was like, was it that one? Was it that, was it that one? And, and I didn't actually know until I, um, I, I had a quick flip back and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, it was that. There was a couple of them, but, but it does actually get you thinking back to the key learning points from each chapter, which which was great. That was the point. And then hope, and I've, I've even had people who said they've read my book maybe a year or two years ago. And they'll they'll be able to quote things back at me. I thought, oh my god, that landed. That's great. And I think you know having those exercises really really helps. 
you know so any kind of recall or you don't even have to be recalled but you just get them to go and do something maybe journal something but just getting people to stop put your book down and do something then it goes into your long-term memory because that's why we live in a world of i don't even know how many self-help books are literally must be I mean, there must be nearly a billion self-help books of some sort now. You know, everywhere. And maybe maybe not that many. (laughs) Honestly, but I think, well, why aren't we living amazing lives then? Why haven't we solved all of our problems? Is there seems to be a book out there to solve every single freaking problem you can think of? So why are we not living these charm lives? That's because we're literally just consuming content, and then we're not recording it. We're not retaining it. And um, therefore, if you don't recall and retain, you're not going to implement. You know, okay. so yeah. Keep being marketed to as well on the new that everyone's chasing the new thing. Um, yeah. I was talking to you about a book the other day, one I called um, "What You Say No To," um, which I'm going to start working on, which is about basically all of this shiny object things and what we're doing in life and what we're going after and where we're, what we're targeting. And, and and literally, if you ask yourself the question, "What you say no to," every time you go to jump onto a new bandwagon. You said it before, don't try and chase everything, just go after one specific thing. And I think that's society's now designed with the with the like the 60 second memory of like a goldfish. What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And none of us. In fact, that's not true either, is it? The goldfish myth. Uh, but anyway, go on, Callum, I'll let you. I, I was told that the average um, attention span for humans is seven seconds and goldfish is nine. So we're officially thicker than a goldfish (laughs) apparently people say a a goldfish only has like a a 30 or 60 second memory but apparently that's bollocks um because they know if if, when you put your hand above the goldfish bowl and it sees you put your hand up with the food you've not put food there for 24 hours but it knows full well it's food that you're dropping in and it flies straight up to the top and 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 it was only like last year i i i heard that and i thought oh my god that makes so much sense that's true so oh, that, that makes it even worse now. So it's not nine seconds. You know, <laughs> we have minutes worth of memory. And we, yeah, apparently, yeah, we, we're, we're at seven seconds now. So this is what I mean. We're just consuming content. But yeah. I, I wish I wish just consuming content would solve problems. You know, if you think about it, someone's overweight, they can just read a diet book. And then by the time they finish reading the book, they're slim. That would be amazing. But that's not how it works. You kind of have to retain things and then implement things. And that's what we're not doing. Yeah. And being held accountable is really important as well, isn't it? To that kind of that kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> I wanted to I've, I've been meaning to start properly writing my own book and uh i've definitely struggled getting off the mark because of like it is attention span things (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and mike Mike was saying like you you told me like it has like a you're you're trying your best to keep to hold me accountable for stuff and like with the the blog element and like making me write on a more regular basis and stuff like that and it, it is helping but it's one of those things where you know sometimes um it's easy, isn't it, to be like, "Oh, this is in the way now, so I will I'll move on to something else." Oh, this is another obstacle, so I'll just move on to something else. Yeah. I think, yeah, and I, I think if I'm bad ab- about it, like, what is this uh, this iPad generation that everyone talks about? How yeah. bad are they going to be? You know, uh-huh. like, that's. But um, I'm glad you said that, because it's not just about. I think that's the other thing. So what I've done is because I specifically work with business owners, brand owners who famously have no time, no spare time at all. So 
you know, it is difficult. Like, it's not like you can just give yourself a week off to go and find a log cabin and just write your book. I mean, that would be amazing. But a lot of people don't have the luxury of being able to do that. So what I've done is I've created, and it's all on my website. So if anyone wants to go and check it out, go and check out the website. But there's a methodology here where what we do is we mind map the entire book out first. So you, and that is where you and that the wonderful thing about mind mapping is, is you don't even have to do it in one goal. It's whenever you get any ideas because you may get inspiration. You may be speaking to a client, for example, and then you go, oh, that was you know what? That needs to go in the book. You know, you maybe you're talking about certain concepts or ideas. You just go into your mind, go into mind map and you just stick it on in the right in the relevant chapters. So I, had, I mean, I've had some people who just, you know, created their mind map within one to two days. But then I've had other people who took a month to mind map their book and they were worried that I was getting annoyed. I was like, no, no, no. This is the bit where you need to actually slow down. Do all your thinking first, because what a lot of people are doing and they don't even realize this because no one's taught them this. No one taught me to do this. So the first time I wrote a book as a ghostwriter, it was hell because no one taught me how to do it. And what we're doing is we are planning and writing and editing all at the same time. In your head as well. In your head. <laughs> That's really Think about it. You have a loose idea of what needs to go into each chapter. And then you go, right, chapter one. And you start writing. You're full of enthusiasm. But then while you're writing, other ideas come into your head. It's like, oh, yeah, I need to put this in as well. But then that doesn't exactly like, how am I going to fit in with what I've already typed now? Oh, hang on, this needs to be earlier than what I typed now. But now that doesn't make sense. And you just get overwhelmed. Then the other thing you're doing is because you're typing it, you can see the words forming. And then guess what you're doing? This phrase will be better. That word makes more sense. Or let me just go and change that. Oh, that, that's a typo. Let me just go back and, and correct that. So you're literally doing three things at the same time. You're planning, you're writing, and you're editing. And that's why it feels overwhelming. And that's why it feels like a lot of people stall writing their book because they're so busy and they're thinking, I need to I've had so many people come to me and say, well, I kind of need like, it's a day a week, don't I? I need to set a day to write my book every week. I'm like, no, not, not the way I teach it. You can literally write your book even when you've got 15 minutes to spare in between clients because we separate the entire thing out. We plan out your entire book so it's mind mapped out. Once you've done all the thinking, all those different thoughts, and that's why it's actually good if you take a little bit of time because new thoughts can come into your head and you can add them to your mind map and you can work out where it needs to be in your book. Then you write your book, but I don't recommend writing it as in physically typing it. We use Otter and we dictate the book out. So if you're okay. dictating it, you can't see the words. If you can't see the words, you can't keep going back and changing things. If you think about it, we've now been speaking for nearly an hour and a half. There's been no way I can't go back and change what I've said in the last hour and a half. It's already just been said. It's, once it's said, it's done. There's nothing I can do. And then once you've done all of your um, transcriptions, you've, you've done all of the dictation, you've got your transcriptions, you put them, slot them into the right places in your manuscript. Now you can go through the entire thing and you can edit it. And when you do it like that, you do it in three separate stages. So plan, then write, or I should say dictate, not write. And then you edit you can actually fit in writing a book even if you're really really busy i've got people i've got one lady at the moment who's um runs two businesses and she's got two kids and she's still getting on with her book 
because she doesn't that's why she ended up signing up with me because she heard from somebody else that I had a way of doing it that didn't involve her having to set aside a day or half a day to write a book because she's honest with me she says I don't have half a day a week to write a book because I've got two young kids and I've got two businesses it's just not going to happen so I've showed her a way where she can literally fit in even when she's got 15 minutes to spare, she's doing something in her book and she's getting it through. And it will take her a few months, but she doesn't have to take half a day off a week or even a day off a week to write a book. Yeah, that's really smart. I like that, Otto's the dictation idea easy. especially. Otto, yeah. Otto was. Have you tried Descript? Descript is the new You one know what? Um, David Castle, I believe, has been on your... Um, he's actually writing a book with me. He's one of my clients. Yeah. Um, David Castle has just introduced me to Descript, so I haven't had a look at it. But you're about the third person telling me about it, so I'm thinking, oh, this well, is a new toy. I need to check it out. Someone mentioned it. We've got it. In fact, everybody in my office has got it. Um, we've all got an account, but we don't use it much. But we, for, for apparently, they've created a new dictation thing that's oh, yeah. way more accurate than uh than otter because otter was like the the leader for ages wasn't it he was yeah, I mean, really accurate. years ago but, yeah oh, that's and and you've got a thing where you can you can edit the audio by just going in and deleting words out of the content so as you edit the content it edits the audio uh so and 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 you can add words and it'll say it in your voice yeah and you can you can remove like ums and ahs and that kind of thing as well and filler words that we all are guilty of using and it sometimes. Creates, you can create the audio version at the same time as writing the the physical version, which is what I, I think that. a lot of people are using it for. Um, and, amazing and, for YouTube videos, absolutely yeah. amazing. I'm definitely it's on my list of things I need to check out because David was telling me about it. I think it was last week. He he told me it's like you need to get Descript. I think you'd be able to use it really well in your business. So yeah. I'll definitely David, check me out. and David are like accountability partners for each other. So whenever I get on a call with David, which is about three times a week now, um, we're always like, have you done this? Have you done this? And he's like, same to me. And if we haven't, we're like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Why are you not doing it? And we proper motive each other to, 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 to we've kind of, we, we both, a few years back we met when we were both just, just coming up and, and we've made so much money together because of that one concept, that accountability partner. Yeah. Uh, it's, it really does I've help. I've got one as well. It really helps. It's like, yeah, it's it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like giving up smoking and not telling anybody about it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just going to be like, you know, as soon as you want one, you just be like, oh, I'll just have a cigarette because no one knows about it. But you tell loads of people about it. Now they're holding you accountable. Now you feel daft for, you know, smoking a cigarette. You're just thinking, I shouldn't do that. I've told all these people that I'm giving up. Same thing as having an accountability buddy. I found that when I know I my, me and my accountability, we meet uh, buddy, we meet every Wednesday, and I just feel like on Tuesday I get a panic. It's like, oh my god, what did I say I was going to do? <gasps> I haven't done that. And then what I do is I do all the things I said I was going to do because I'm going to meet her on Wednesday. But it's really good. It, it means that I fulfill all the goals I'm setting myself. Whereas otherwise, I'll probably get to Tuesday and be like, ah, I just work. And you and that time never comes. I'll just work harder next week. You won't. No, you know, so won't. yeah, yeah, yeah. Relying on your future self to do all the work for you. Yeah. I, I do that I within do that. my programs as well. I, I set people up as account uh, accountability buddies to write books as well because it, it works in the same way. Uh, and I've noticed whenever the, the ones that do agree to have an accountability buddy, I mean, I don't force them, but the ones that actually go, yeah, it's a cool idea, they end up writing their books and publishing it because what ends we up happening should, is we should do it, Callum. 
Yeah, we definitely your book, should. And I should write another book that, that I'm going to write. Well, I'll write one with you and we'll make sure we do a chapter a week. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. really, really helps because then you feel like you're letting the other person down because you can't really, you're now unbalanced. So if someone's moved, you know, someone's still in the planning stage and someone's now in the writing stroke dictation stage, what are they going to talk about? So if you're going to feel like you're, you've let your buddy down, really, so you're going to keep up and make sure you're with them where they are. Love yeah, that definitely. Idea. They should have done that in university. When I, I think lots of people would have got better grades in my class. If we'd, I definitely would have if you had an account, if you were assigned an accountability buddy. And you, yeah, I think definitely. that would have been cool. We were assigned workshop groups, but everyone was just so nice. Everyone was <laughs> painfully nice. nice people. <laughs> You'd bring, yeah, you need someone who's a bit abrasive. Fuck guys. <laughs> we yeah. say that every week, don't we? Fuck yeah. those guys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a, good, it's a good mantra to have. Um, Right. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I've got one last question for you. I don't know, Mike, if you've got any other questions that you wanted to ask? Oh, I'm good, mate. I'll just wing it. No? You know what I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good. Accountability, buddy. Right. I will um, I'll jump into my last question. Talking about books, I put a pin in the Nazi thing for this reason. You said in that you visited somewhere. Was it Berlin? Yes, I was in Berlin. That's that, Yeah, it's one of those moments that, you know, kind of, took my breath away really because I, I wasn't let me let me let me tell you the story so then it would make sense yeah set so the scene was, uh, so one of my best friends rosie she is um i don't know what, what what they call them you know people are really into a particular culture like for example if someone's really into english culture you call them an anglophile yeah uh -huh. whatever the german version is i don't know what the german version is but she's one of those germanophile germanophile i don't think it's that <laughs> it <laughs> should be that. let's go with germanophile <laughs> Um, she's really, she, she speaks the language quite fluently, but it's not just the fact that she speaks the language, she's really into the culture, she knows a lot about the history, um, it, it, the good and the bad, the very bad uh, in Germany. So she says, come on, let's go to Berlin. And I was like, okay, I was going to Berlin, I'll be honest with you, this is, this is going back, I want to say 14 or 15 years ago. So I was still in my party phase. Berlin, at the time, I was really, really into minimal techno. And Berlin was the birth of minimal techno. So I'm envisaging, you know, basement nightclubs until the morning. <laughs> and then we go to a shisha cafe and get some breakfast and some shisha eight in the morning. Don't get me wrong. Rosie knew that what my expectations were. And she was all into that as well. She loves minimal techno. She loves dancing. She loves shisha. We were going to do that. What I didn't realize she meant was we're going to do that during the night. And then we're going to go sightseeing for the rest of the day. I don't think she, basically she didn't schedule in any sleeping is what I what I discovered. So on that day, I I'd been out till I think she'd been sensible. I think she went home at four in the morning, managed to get about three, four hours sleep. I obviously just carried on because I was just loving the music. So I was there until about seven in the morning. Then I ended up meeting some people in the club. We ended up in a shisha bar doing shisha and having breakfast. Then I get a phone call. She's like, right, I'm outside. Come on, let's go. I'm like, oh, God, okay, let's do this. So she's now taking me around Berlin, and I'm trying. I, I, on the one hand, I'm feeling guilty. I'm thinking she's showing me some really significant things. Like, you know, there was, like, one bit where there's, like, you could still see the bullets. You know, the bullets are made into yeah. the wall. And, you know, but you have to remember, I've now literally not slept in about oh, 20 <laughs> hours or something like that so i'm trying to feign interest but you know i've got one of these faces you can see everything that's going on inside my head on my face 
So I'm like, oh my God. And like, I'm trying to be interested. And there was even, we went to the place where apparently is Hitler's bunker was oh, cool. below cool. our feet, but they don't mark it. Uh, yeah, it's like a car park, right? Yeah, it's a car park. And there's yeah. people there and they were like, oh my God, this is like so significant. And I'm just like, I'm just <laughs> All out. Americans probably. Yeah, and I'm just sweating out alcohol going, I just want to go to bed. <laughs> I was not affected. And then I'm feeling guilty. Basically, my main emotion was the guilt that I'm not getting affected by the history. Because this is like a huge part of world history, you know, and I'm I'm just too hungover to really care about it. And then the only thing that really got me was this, you know, this it's just a little glass, it's just like a glass screen. And you don't even realize what it is, and you walk up to it, and the inside you just see these pristine white shelves and they're completely pristine there's no books on them and then they're just this this little inscription they're just saying first you burn books then they burn people and that always stayed with me because you have to and i mean we talk about the nazi book burnings because they were so prolific at it but really it's something that's been done throughout time you know you burn books first because you don't want people to be knowledgeable you don't want them to really understand anything because if they understand stuff then you can't control them so that always stayed well and that just suddenly suddenly i wasn't hung over that moment is suddenly you know when you just suddenly you know, the cloud lifts and i just started crying because i was just like oh but that's now got me the bullets didn't get me, nothing else got me for some strange reason. I was hard as hell then. But suddenly seeing these pristine shells with no books on them and that inscription, that just kind of, I just broke into broke out into tears and I just thought, now I get it, you know, now now I get why they burn books. And and, and it still happens now, you know, it's still, have, book burning still happen now as yeah. a way of removing education. Because if you can remove education from people, they become so much far more compliant. Then you can do whatever you need to do with them. You know? Yeah. So to answer your question, what do you think is the most dangerous book written? Oh, I, I don't think, <laughs> It's I don't not think... an easy question. It took me ages to yeah. think of what my answer would be. It's kind of mean. Yeah. What is the most dangerous I'm... book? I think it's an easy question. Go on, go on. You answer it. I'm thinking of yours. You answer it. It's got to be the Bible. I was thinking I'm... of going there. I was thinking of the yeah. Bible. Um, I'm just, I'm not against the Bible, don't get me wrong, I just feel that more people have died through the Bible than than, mm. than most other, I mean, it's got to be some sort of religious book, can't it, because religion kills a lot of people, as well as, it gives a lot of people faith, it kills a lot of people, so I'm yeah. going to say the Bible and think, fuck it, if people hate me for it. <laughs> yeah, although to be honest, I will add in all the other religious texts, because it's not just the Bible, is it, it's no. most of the other Yeah, there are older texts. ones than the Bible too, yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think is the most? I would say, I, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit left field here. <laughs> I don't go actually think I don't actually think this is a dangerous book. I don't think it's a dangerous book, but it could be at some point in the future be seen as a dangerous book. Okay. And I would say that's the Kama Sutra, because that oh. book was all about. It's if you look about, it, it's all about female empowerment. It's all about even the stuff to to the guys was all about make sure she feels good, make sure she's enjoying herself. And, was, and if you look at all of the um, the cultures and the religions that existed before 
Christianity, before Islam, before Judaism, the so-called three big religions, you know, the major religions. If you look at Hinduism, it still exists, or Sikhism, or even the dead um, uh, religions, such as the Norse religion or the Egyptian religion and that sort of thing. There was a lot of worshipping of women and really giving women their rightful place as, as equals, and not equal in terms of strength, but equitable relationship, as in men and women are equally powerful in different ways and you respect each other in in the fact that you bring differences which is how it should have always been you know and it was that way and then you had these three religions that came in and suddenly that this whole patriarchal system came in so i think in the future depending because it now seems to be you know, we had this whole me too movement in the last few years and women waking up and saying no we're not just putting up with this crap anymore uh, and i wonder if there's going to be going back to karma sutra and the texts of karma sutra going back to much older scripture much older than the bible the bible's not even all that old so going back to really old scripture there's always been very respectful of women and always seeing women as, as equals as men, just different. We're equal but different. We're not trying to be the same as each other. It's just respecting the differences and saying we're both bringing different things to the table. Something that doesn't, if you think about it, doesn't well work well with patriarchy. And you've, yeah. heard, you've, heard of the, you've heard of incel culture. Yeah. Yeah, that is just rising at the moment. So I'm wondering in the future if something like the Karma Sutra would be banned and we can't have women educated and we can't have them thinking that you know they should actually enjoy sex yeah i think <laughs> a lot of the problems with, with the <laughs> the incel culture is just a lack of uh experience or time around women like that a lot of the time i think they I spend know, a lot I'm of like, time when did that become a bragging thing you're an involuntary yeah. celibate i'd be quiet about that if I yeah <laughs> and I think it, it comes from just a massive misunderstanding, doesn't it? Of just being like, yeah, women only want to like take your money and they just want to like, said, you know, money? all of those things. You don't even have money because you, if you yeah. have money, you would be getting sex. So exactly. You, it makes zero knows, it makes no sense because there's women out there who want to be with a guy because of his personality. There's women out there who want guys for their looks and there's women out there who want guys for money. I think either or is great. I don't really care what your reason for being with a guy is. As long as you're happy, then I'm happy. So if you've got money, so when they start talking about, you know, they only want to take your money, it's like, what money? Yeah. You're celibate involuntarily. So yeah. you don't have money, you don't have looks, and you don't have a personality. You literally don't even have one of three, never mind more than that. So what are you complaining about? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a huge misunderstanding, <laughs> the, I think, on both sides of the mess. Story we we read from years ago, uh, Callum, and, and I think whoever, I can't remember if he was writing about the Greeks or he was writing about the Romans, right? And it was about, um, basically, he, he they were going to a battle they were definitely going to lose, right? And I think they, they understood the difference between men and women uh, way better than what nowadays it's all fucking mental. Ah, uh, yeah. But yeah, this is Spartans. He, he had, right, the Spartans. And what he had is they, had, they sent off uh, a few hundred soldiers that were going to fight thousands of, of some other battle. I don't fucking know who it was. And, Persians. And, the way he chose this, this is why he's the, he's the one that knows all the stuff. Uh, and the way they chose who to send is he looked at, at, at society and all of his soldiers and he didn't send his three best soldiers to fight. Instead, what he did is he chose 300 soldiers that were supported by the strongest women. Now, the women who could, who, who because they were going to the deaths, 
the women who would continue to hold up society and hold things together when all these 300 men were killed. So he chose them based on whether their wives, their mothers, their daughters, and everybody else would continue. Because what he realized is men men, men run around and they fight and they try and cause trouble and they, and they start societies, but women hold societies together and women build communities, whereas men don't. And if they'd have sent the 300 best soldiers and all the women had fell apart, then was it Rome or Greece or wherever they were talking about? Sparta, yeah. Sparta would have fallen apart completely. And I thought, yeah. when, when I read that, it stuck with me. It resonated with me because I thought, they fucking got it perfectly there. Yeah. It's like men run around, like what, what, even when we were living in, in tribes and, and the women look after the kids and, 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 and they feed the kids and they protect them and the men run around like fucking idiots fighting each other, trying to nick stuff from each other and bring it over home. But if there's no home to bring it back to, then they're just idiots running around in a field. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that was kind of it. Kind of stuck yeah. with me, and I was like, "Wow, that makes so much sense." I don't remember names and times. I just always remember the concepts and they stick. And I was like, "That what you just said about about the, the Kama Sutra kind of it, it reminded me of that." Yeah. Oh, yeah, Kali. it's an awesome choice. That was such a good choice. Um, yeah, it was. It was yeah, I liked it. I mean, I kinda... It has to be answered. It's not really dangerous at the moment, apart from in danger of giving somebody an orgasm, which is a good thing, I would think. <laughs> but I, but I, I just couldn't. Unless you're an I, I was going to go down the religious text, but then Mike beat me to it. You know, it, I would say the religious texts are quite dangerous. But otherwise, you know what? I don't think. I don't know. Maybe Mein Kampf. We go going back to the Nazi thing. Maybe Mein Kampf would right. be quite dangerous. Yeah. Well. Anybody I, I thought about that too. Superiority of one group of being, however you're going to cast it over another group of being, that would be dangerous. See, um, I, I went for the Gulag Archipelago because I think it was really, uh, obviously it depends on who it's dangerous to. You kind of went on the it? same. Before so the Gulag Archipelago, it was uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote it and he was in the Gulags in Russia um, after the second world war so it was like their um communism and so the soviet uh state was at its peak and communism was was huge and people were getting basically people who didn't believe in the same things as the um leaders of the uh sort of communist party in russia and the soviet union were being chucked into these gulags which were horrible prisons they were basically essentially concentration camps to be fair they were labor camps and stuff that was awful but this guy Solzhenitsyn he was a soldier and he got sent to one of these camps because they sent all the soldiers because they were like they came home to no jobs and they were like well they're going to be pissed off so let's quickly send all of those off to camps so they did and he wrote this book and amazingly he wrote most of it from from memory he would he would just walk around and he would dictate the book to himself and people's stories he would just dictate them to himself over and over and over again so when he got paper a a pen and paper he could actually write it down which i think is amazing but essentially that book escaped from when once it was written it escaped the soviet union or the the iron curtain where there was not a lot of uh, intellectual stuff couldn't really be passed around because he didn't want these ideas getting out of the soviet union or getting in so they uh it somehow made it to Paris and then it spread around and every, loads of people had read it outside of the Soviet Union and it changed a lot of people's opinions on the Soviet Union. And uh, then it got back into the Soviet Union and it was pretty much around the time that it started. There were lots of reasons for the Soviet Union collapsing, but the Gulag Archipelago is credited as one of the reasons that people started to be like, oh, geez, like, this is actually happening in our, in our country. We had no idea. And um, 
yeah or or we thought it was happening but no one was brave enough to speak about it so i, I that's why it was i think a why is it dangerous, dangerous and i've just bought it and i just bought i bought your clients oh. one as well uh but go on why is it why is it dangerous <laughs> uh because it brought down a uh political ideology in soviet socialism and so dangerous communism. in a good way I yeah in the, in the same way that this karma sutra would be yeah i think dangerous. We, we read the question slightly i think callum and i read the question slightly differently to you did mike so we took it as dangerous in a good way what would what would bring something down what would topple something Whereas you thought it's like, what's actually killing people? <laughs> what's being yeah. what's what's yeah. murdering a load of people? I mean, either is fine. It just depends who it's dangerous to, right? I'm literal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. So we've come to the end of the podcast. We 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 said we'll keep you on for an hour. It's an hour, an hour and forty-seven minutes. Um, <laughs> you can always we do this every week. <laughs> But guys, anybody interested in this book, it's absolutely brilliant. The Freedom Master Plan. If you want to write your own book, and and, and the saying I put up on the screen before, uh, where's it gone? Is that it? Let me just share. Is this the, is this the one? It's no, not the bottom. I got it. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, you have to think of your book as the key to your treasure and not your treasure itself. If you're in a business, if you're doing anything work-related, if you are trying to build a brand if you're trying to build a company if you're trying to if you're starting out as a small company not not just it doesn't have to be something unique even if you're doing this as a plumber a roofer electrician there's ways you can put these things together in in service businesses so that you can actually grow um something that turns you into a figurehead let's let's say a tony robbins of your industry and when you when you look at it that way um the one of the great things that stuck with me from your book was the speech that you said about that that you, you don't need to work, go out and work and spend years to become an authority before you write a book. Write a book and it'll turn you into an authority really, really quickly. Um, and the best person to teach you that is Metali. Where do they go to get in contact with you, Metali? If they just go to the veganpublisher.com. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you for having any, me. Any final thoughts, guys? Oh, gosh, you have to ask us a question or something. Otherwise, mine's going to go yeah, right. I'm... Okay, then. Well, I'll just yeah. say thank you very much for everybody. We will see you again next week. Subscribe to the channel. We'll see you next week. And thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.